Close Source is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials, from tea towels to linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Gentle Vibes, a vintage shop for the psychedelic mind, formerly inside Jeans and Hamtramck with a new Detroit location coming soon. Picnic Wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnic Wear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. No Flight Back Vintage, bringing fun, new life to old things. Always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at No Flight Back Vintage. And Shift Clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple, hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that is realizing that LuLaRoe fans and sneakerheads have a lot in common. <laughs> I'm your host, Amanda. So guess what? Remember how I said today's episode was going to be part two of two? Well, it's actually part two of three. Surprise! Because that's how much of this like LuLaRoe stuff and story there is to tell you. So I'll be back on Wednesday with the final installment. I just didn't want to cut anything out. Like I said, there's so much. It's so fascinating. And I know that you're all loving it based on what I heard. So, you know, I wanted to tell the full story. Okay. It's time to thank the newest Close Horse patrons. First is Bridget Kennedy. Bridget has the cutest dogs and I look forward to seeing them on the gram every day. So thank you so much, Bridget. I love when animal people support the pod. <laughs> Next is Meg Geary, who left the best review for Close Horse on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for supporting me in so many different ways, Meg. Natalie Hulford is also a new patron, and she's a cat lady like me, so I'm really excited to have her support. She has three very cute cats named Debbie, Special Agent Dale Cooper, and Greta. Shout out to all the other three cat households out there, including my own home. Three cats is just like the perfect number. <laughs> you can see Natalie's cute cats on Instagram at Debbie underscore medium underscore Harry. Thank you for your support, Natalie. Lastly, but not leastly, is Wendy Marshall, my first Australian patron. I feel... So international. So thank you so much for your support, Wendy. Your Instagram photography is beautiful. Also, I just wanted to add that I have two new Pegasus patrons, meaning businesses that sponsor the show, Late to the Party People and No Flight Back Vintage. Thank you so much for your support. If you would like to support the show and me via Patreon, you can find more information at patreon.com slash clotheshorsepodcast. And don't worry, I'll also share that link in the show notes. And 
If you can't become a patron, hey, that's totally fine too. If you want to show your support in other ways that are super valuable but free, you could leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or recommend the show to some friends or share our content on social media or just be a regular old listener. I'm really happy to have you here no matter what. Do you hear that sound? It's the Close Horse Hotline ringing and it's a call from our friend Selena Sanders. Let's see what she has to say. Hey, Amanda, it's Selena Sanders. I really love dialing into this phone line right now because it reminds me of um, Vice. You know how they have a hotline, and although some of the messages there are kind of batshit crazy, I'm not going to leave you a batshit crazy one. (laughs) Um, I was actually thinking about you because um, as a small business, um, the whole idea of Black Friday is sort of looming around the corner. And I actually, after working, you know, in this industry for such a long time, I know some of the secrets and like some of the kind of psychological reasonings behind how things are priced and the psychology behind it, right? But I feel like because you obviously have been in the merchant role and probably know a lot more about the strategies of Black Friday, I feel like that would be a really good one to cover, and I would be very interested to learn more about this kind of crazy and sort of, um, I don't know, what do we call it then when it's like almost traditional, I guess, like it's part of the tradition of Thanksgiving and all that stuff. Also, basically pushing for more consumption and just the craziness of buying. More power to you. I love listening to every each and every episode. I'm addicted. I am always like checking to see if today is Wednesday or Sunday because I know I'm going to get a new episode of the of the pod. So I thank you for that and for keeping me company while I work because, like I said, I don't have any coworkers and literally you're my unofficial coworker. So <laughs> enjoy your night and um, I'll talk to you soon. Okay, so I'm so glad that Selena called about Black Friday because it's been on my mind too. I mean, it's coming very soon. Did you know that 20% of all purchases that happen in one year happen in November and December? And spoiler, we're all buying a lot of things that maybe we don't need or really like that much. Let's have a little bit of a history lesson. Until the 1880s, Christmas gifting was not the huge deal that we know it as now. Yes, people exchanged gifts, but most were handmade and there weren't as many. And just in general, for the early part of the 1800s, Christmas wasn't a huge deal until, put this in the you learn something new every day file, the poem The Night Before Christmas was published in 1822. And then the idea of Christmas Eve, Santa, and gifts made the holidays a much bigger deal. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, more and more people were moving to the cities, so they started buying pre-made gifts at stores. And this started the idea of the holiday shopping season. Ironically or not, in 1900, people were already complaining about the commercialization of Christmas, which, I mean... (laughs) I'm sure they never imagined that people would be starting to line up at Best Buy at 11.50 on Thanksgiving night or that Christmas decorations would be in the store like immediately when Halloween was over, if not on Halloween day. So we sure have come a long way, baby. (laughs) 
Black Friday began to develop in 1939. Here's another, put this in your, I just learned this file. When Franklin Roosevelt changed Thanksgiving from the last Thursday of November to the fourth Thursday in November, which effectively added another week to the holiday shopping season. And this was intentional. Retailers wanted shoppers to have another week to shop. So the date, this whole tradition of Thanksgiving being on the fourth Thursday, which always confuses me. I always have to get out the calendar and count the Thursdays to figure out when I'm supposed to make dinner. It became this date strictly for the sake of capitalism. I'm here to tell you, that probably everything you think about Black Friday is wrong because I know what I thought about Black Friday was wrong. I'm going to start by reading this excerpt from a 2013 New Yorker article aptly titled, Everything You Know About Black Friday is Wrong. Beginning in the 1930s, thousands of fans thronged Philadelphia's municipal stadium for the Army-Navy football game. As festive as the mood was inside the stadium, it wasn't nearly so cheerful for the Philadelphia police officers who had to herd crowds. The game was frequently held on the Saturday after Thanksgiving, and just as visiting fans were showing up the day before, holiday shoppers also would descend on downtown. On those Fridays after Thanksgiving, the late Joseph P. Barrett, a longtime reporter for the Philadelphia Bulletin, recalled that even members of the police band were called upon to direct traffic. The cops nicknamed this day of gridlock Black Friday, and soon others started to do the same. So retailers in Philadelphia did not like the term Black Friday because they thought it would scare shoppers away. And when you think about it out of the context of how we know it, it does sound pretty menacing. And that was frustrating for the retailers because this was supposed to be the official launch day of holiday shopping. They didn't want any bad vibes involved. So they pulled off a public relations miracle by rebranding it as a day of family bonding and holiday cheer. And soon that moniker, Black Friday, and the concept of it spread across the country. So now I always heard and maybe you did too, that Black Friday got its name because it's the day when retailers officially enter the black, meaning start to make a profit for the year. Which now when I say it out loud, sounds so stupid because what business would allow itself to bleed money for 10 months out of the year? Everything that we think we know about Black Friday was created by the retail industry. I mean, it's not a real holiday, okay? It has no purpose other than to buy and sell stuff, right? Black Friday and Black Friday sales, they existed in the 80s and 90s, but things didn't get this crazy until the century we're in right now. In the early aughts, Walmart did something super crazy and shocking. They opened on Thanksgiving night and people, I don't know if you remember seeing this or hearing people talk about it, but people lost their minds. Like, is nothing sacred anymore? And I remember there were so many think pieces. People were like, this is more proof that Walmart's the worst business ever. Walmart doesn't care about people. Walmart doesn't care about freedom. Walmart doesn't care about Thanksgiving. Now, many stores are open on Thanksgiving night with all-night doorbusters and other special events. It seems like that won't be happening this year, and I kind of hope it's not coming back. Not that I think that Thanksgiving is some sacred holiday, but as a person who's had to finish dinner really fast and go to work on Thanksgiving night, I just think, doesn't everybody deserve a day off? Like a collective 
national day off. And I know some people still have to go to work on Thanksgiving, but couldn't we minimize the amount of people who need to go to work on Thanksgiving so we could all just eat food and lay on the couch or watch movies or not eat food and drink a bunch, whatever it is we want to do. Anyway, that's my lecture about Thanksgiving. So Cyber Monday, I know you've heard that term too, is the Monday after Black Friday. And that first arrived in the scene on 2005. And at this point, there was a clear division here. Black Friday was supposed to be all about brick and mortar sales, meaning in stores, while Cyber Monday was intended for online deals. So stores wouldn't do anything on Cyber Monday, websites wouldn't do anything on Black Friday. Well, in the years that I've worked in the fashion and retail industry, I've seen a sort of outward creeping of these shopping holidays, and I'm sure you have too. First, websites adopted Black Friday as well. So suddenly we had this whole weekend of sales between Black Friday and Cyber Monday, right? Then Black Friday spread to Thanksgiving Day as more and more stores either remained open all day or just opened Thanksgiving night after everyone was done with dinner. Some department stores adopted an open 24 hours policy that began at midnight on Black Friday. I'm thinking top of mind of Macy's and Kohl's. And then soon Black Friday specials were extended through the weekend until Cyber Monday. Then It was the day before Thanksgiving that the sales began. Then the Monday before Thanksgiving, it was, it became known as Black Friday week, cyber week, sale week, whatever. Then it would turn into a whole week of daily deals starting the Thursday before Thanksgiving. So deal of the day, every day you saw a few people adopt this, then next year everyone did. And it just spread and spread and spread. And this year... I received Black Friday emails from several major retailers, including Target, on November 1st, which seemed so crazy and tone deaf to me as we were about to begin an incredibly stressful election. We've got COVID blowing up everywhere, and Target's trying to tell me that on November 1st, I should really swoop up all these deals on toys and clothing for the whole family. Like, no, guys, come on. It's not a good look. It's especially not a good look in 2020 when everything is so bonkers. Okay, so we talked about Black Friday, Cyber Monday. Well, then there's Giving Tuesday. Giving Tuesday is the day after Cyber Monday, and it was created in 2012 as a day for the good people of the world to do some charitable giving after all that shopping the previous days. And on one hand, I'm a huge fan of Giving Tuesday, and I think... This is a good day to integrate into your own holiday gift giving and shopping, and it's a great day to lean into if you have a business of your own. But like all good things, I've seen some shady retailers exploit it. You knew that was coming. In recent years, savvy brands have adopted this as another reason to get you shopping. Most retailers have begun offering this like a portion of profits from today will be donated to charity approach. And for the retailers, this can really help ease the drop off in sales after Cyber Monday. I've literally worked for brands who used Giving Tuesday to drive more sales. And it was very strategic. It was very cynical. It was to meet a goal for the month of November that maybe we were missing. And it was really integrated at the last minute after we realized the Black Friday wasn't hitting as hard as we'd hoped. So I know that this really happens. 
If you want more information about just how beneficial these give back situations can be for a retailer and how unbeneficial they can be for charities, I would suggest you go back and listen to the very first mini so that I made like way back in July about cause marketing. These donations end up being really tiny, sometimes less than five cents per dollar that you spend. And the donation usually isn't made for months because there's a lot of bookkeeping and red tape to handle first. Basically, don't buy stuff just because of this pretty inconsequential give back. Now, I will say that I think if we're looking at small businesses, the kind of businesses we talk about a lot and feature here on the podcast, they're giving Tuesday special. I think those are a good use of your time and money because we're talking about people literally saying, your purchase pays me. I'm taking some of that quote paycheck I'm going to receive from you and I'm going to donate it to a good cause. And I can't think of anything more lovely than that. So support the small businesses who do something for Giving Tuesday. It's probably no surprise to you that five of the busiest shopping days of the entire year occur between November 21st and the 26th, which is, you know, in general, Black Friday, Cyber Monday period. But with more and more sales being pushed into November because of all these crazy Black Friday, Cyber Monday, sort of like month of deals happening, retailers have started to kind of see a disappointing decline in sales in December. It's like, yes, they're blowing November out of the water, but they want to keep that momentum going. It's greedy for sure. Another emerging shopping holiday is Green Monday. And this term was coined by eBay in 2007 to describe the best sales day in December, usually the second Monday of December. Most retailers aren't calling out the name Green Monday in marketing messages that they send you, but they are sending you a ton of exciting sales offers on that day. So check your inbox this year and you'll see what I'm talking about. I bet somehow Green Monday is going to be even bigger this year in terms of what's being pushed at you. So science has proven that shopping, especially when we think we're getting a hot deal, gives us the same sense of excitement and accomplishment that we once got from hunting and gathering. And further research has indicated that we as humans love combining the joy of a hot deal with the joy of giving. In fact, and this was so crazy to me, but not surprising, some studies have concluded that we feel competitive about how much work we've put into procuring a gift. So jumping through the hoops of Black Friday makes us feel victorious, like super generous, like the best gift givers ever. However, and maybe what I'm going to say isn't going to surprise you, when the retailers that I worked for did consumer insight research, we found out that most of the stuff we sold on Black Friday and Cyber Monday wasn't intended as gifts at all. People were buying it for themselves. In fact, true gift-giving purchases really didn't pick up until that second week of December around Green Monday. Sure, there were people out there buying gifts before that, but most of our customers, who I would categorize as millennial and Gen Z, were just shopping deals for themselves. There's nothing wrong with that, right? You gotta treat yourself. But let's talk about these super hot deals for a minute. Well, I mean, in summary, they just aren't that great of a deal. The items you buy at 50% off or 75% off or whatever the offer is are engineered to remain incredibly profitable while selling at that super low price that you're seeing. 
This means cheaper fabrics, less details, shoddy trims, and probably lower pay for all the people who are going to touch that product from fabric cutting to sewing to shipping to working in the stores. Because if something's that cheap, someone didn't get paid. In some of my jobs, I would plan these promotions that seemed random and lucky to the customer six months ahead of time. I performed laborious hindsight on previous holiday sales, figuring out what was a hit, what I should have ordered more of, what could have been cheaper, what could have been more expensive. I mean, I'm looking at it in every direction. And then I use that analysis to determine how I can make the next series of shopping holidays even bigger, even more profitable, and even more exciting. And I was good at it because you know what? I also love a hot deal. I understand how good that can feel. So what would I do? I would work with vendors to substitute fabrics and cut out details so we could get even lower costing for the next round of hot deals. I negotiated discounts based on increased quantity. So I would buy way more units than I thought I could sell because I needed to get that reduced cost to make the deal profitable for the company. In the world of clothing, more units always equal lower pricing. I think that's a really good fact for you to memorize because it's a key to a lot of strange and bad waste that we see happening in the world of fashion and retail. Every single retailer is doing that. They are buying more units than they can sell because they are cheaper. I've talked about the billions, I mean billions with a B, of garments that are made every year but never sold. Black Friday is a big contributor to that wasteful practice. In other situations, we would pull product off the site months in advance, styles that we would call, quote, dogs, meaning that no one was buying them, and then launch them again as if they were brand new around Black Friday, and boom, immediately mark them down as a super hot deal on this, quote, new item. And you know what? It worked. But as I've mentioned before, when something seems cheaper to us, it has less value to us. We won't wear a 75% off dress to a special event. We probably won't think it's valuable enough for a job interview or a date. And so it ends up in the landfill or the thrift store way faster. Even if the buyer was working on developing these styles for six months, it's all still fast fashion at its core. We're talking poor sewing, poor fit, a short lifespan, tons and tons of microplastic shedding synthetics. Like this is the time of year for synthetic fabrics. And then there's all the packaging. It's like a mountain of poly bags, boxes upon boxes upon boxes, probably some dumb hang tags with special safety pins. And while these boxes can be recycled, the use of cardboard outpaces existing recycled resources at this time of year. Like we're just cutting down trees to make boxes for Black Friday and Cyber Monday. I mean, that makes me sad. And that's not all. There are the deliveries. In 2017, it was estimated that every 93 seconds, a diesel truck left an Amazon fulfillment center. That's a minute and a half. And studies have proven that air pollution increases during these shopping holidays as more and more delivery trucks are dispatched out onto the roads. 
And so the air is crappy, but guess what else? This can impact neighborhoods that don't have the roads infrastructure for this level of traffic. So we're looking at more potholes, more congestion, and then even more pollution from all the idling trucks and cars stuck in traffic. Oh, I know. Are you getting down on Black Friday? Because I am for sure. Let's say you just lost your mind on Black Friday and you bought all this stuff. And of course, then later you were like, why did I do that? I'm so filled with regret. So you return everything that you bought on Black Friday. Well, that can double the carbon footprint of your purchase because, you know, it's going on more truck rides. And many online retailers just destroy returns rather than returning them to the inventory. And there's no clear data on that because it's sort of a dirty secret of the industry, but it's also known industry-wide that everyone does that. Some places will sell off the returns to jobbers who might resell them in their own stores, to outlets, you know, on Poshmark. But once again, all this moving, packing, unpacking, blah, 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 consumes a lot of energy, a lot of packaging, and doubles, triples, quadruples the carbon footprint of these garments themselves. So basically, just even more epic waste. It's just a no-win situation. So that's why I'm urging you as a customer to say no to Black Friday and Cyber Monday and all of the other holidays of deals, deals, deals. If something you have been planning to buy for a while is on sale for Black Friday or Cyber Monday, you know what? Go for it. But don't just buy stuff because you are bored or caught up in the excitement because I promise the better stuff that you will love is probably not part of Black Friday. If you're a small brand like Selena, then I suggest you skip the dumb Black Friday brouhaha and tell your customers why. Explain everything I just said. This is how we educate one another. And just as every purchase is political, so is every sale. However, I would suggest that you as a business owner do something for Giving Tuesday instead by doing a really special charity donation that day. And if you as a customer want to do some shopping, then that's a great day to give some extra value to your purchase. Because I think we tend to think of the value of something being its retail price, but I think it's so much more than that. It's the longevity of the product, the way it makes us feel, and the impact of its existence. That's why buying from small businesses always feels more valuable to me and probably to you as well. Like things that I love and treasure the most are the things I bought from small businesses, makers, designers, boutiques, vintage sellers. That's because I know that the purchase impacted the person who made it or sold it to me directly. And it allowed them to continue doing what they love. I mean, that that is far more valuable than any brand new 50% off item on Black Friday. So once again, 20% of all the stuff sold each year is sold in November and December. So how we spend our money at this time of year has major impact. As you know, I like to say, your money is as powerful as your vote. So we are doing a lot of voting at this time of year. Let's vote for things we believe in. Sustainability, ethics, human rights, the environment, social responsibility, workers' rights. There's even more, right? All of it. 
That's why I have created the Close Horse Buy Better Holiday Pledge. Seven things that we can all pledge to do this year in these crazy two months of shopping and giving. First, say no to Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Second, choose Giving Tuesday. Third, give secondhand. Four, buy local. Five, shop small. Six, be mindful of holiday waste. And seven, don't give your money to assholes. I'm going to spend the next few episodes breaking these points down, and you'll also see me talking about it a lot on Instagram. Please consider taking the pledge and encouraging others to do so too. Once again, I'll be regularly posting shareable content about the pledge on Instagram, so it's a great way for you to share it with your friends and family. This crazy year, when everything is so super upside down, it's a great time for us to build new habits as consumers and gift givers. I mean, this could be the jump off to totally changing the fashion and retail industries. So let's make change happen together. If you want to talk about your holiday shopping plans or something else on your mind that you want to share, please call the Clothes Horse Hotline. As you can see, it's very easy and fun. (laughs) And also, it's really just a voicemail, so you don't have to talk to me. The number is 717-925-7417. Call me, all right? Please note that there is a cutoff, like after about two minutes, so you may have to call back, and I'll just splice it all together like it never happened. Please don't forget to leave a callback number or an email address or even your Instagram handle if I have more follow-up questions for you or want to ask your permission or whatever. I wanted to take a moment to talk about one of the amazing brands that helps make clothes horse possible, and that's Picnic Wear. Picnic Wear is a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City, almost entirely from vintage and dead stock materials. Clothes horse friend and previous guest Danny, I know you all love her, is the designer and maker behind the brand. She's been making things and sourcing slash reworking vintage since she was a teenager in Vancouver, Canada. When she was 18, she moved to New York City to study fashion design, and after that, she designed for large retailers for more than 10 years. And while she was passionate about clothing and design, she was disappointed by the direction that the industry had been taking, particularly in its overproduction of disposable fashion. 100%. (laughs) She didn't want to play a part in that anymore, so in 2018, she left the corporate fashion world in pursuit of more fulfilling work. I'm sure by now you've scoped out Danny's work on Instagram. And if you haven't yet, then go find her now at Picnic Wear. And where is spelled W-E-A-R. Or you can go to the website, picnicwear.com. Go ahead and do it now. And the rest of us will wait patiently for you. Okay, did you do it yet? Anyway. Now that you know what Danny's all about, I'm sure you're aware of her signature hats made of upcycled vintage towels. But they're not just any towels. They're incredible jacquards of the 60s and 70s that have stood the test of time. Danny calls her first hat an isolation creation made in the early days of the pandemic. She had a few vintage towels lying around because of course she does. (laughs) And she had always been inspired by the garments made by women in the 60s and 70s from towels that they had bought at places like Sears. 
And I've seen these too. If you haven't, do yourself a favor and Google 70s towel dress because they're amazing and you'll want one. Danny wanted to think outside the box in terms of what she made with those materials. And as a textile nerd, she's continuously inspired by the textures and richness of the amazing vintage towels that she sources. Like, these aren't the $5 towels from Target, okay? These vintage towels were all hand-loomed, and they are all incredibly unique. And if you've seen one of these in real life, they are just stunning. You're like, you want me to just dry off my body with this towel because this is a work of art. She says, quote, just laying out the pattern pieces and determining what portions of the textile to highlight gives me such satisfaction. And you can see this in her work. It's so unique and it highlights the natural beauty of all the materials she uses. Now, I say this all the time, but while the pandemic is forcing so many changes in basically every aspect of our lives, I think this is a great opportunity for new community-minded brands to thrive because we're all tired of fast fashion and it's wasteful, boring ways. So I'm glad to say that Danny is doing something amazing. She's been growing picnic wear during, well, the craziest times. Understatement, right? She has two other sewists doing production for her and she takes pride in paying them a living wage, which means more than minimum wage. That's amazing. And she's been able to be a part of the growing community of upcyclers, makers, and vintage sellers slash lovers that come together via social media. I mean, you're probably a part of this community by now. She's constantly inspired and excited by the people that she gets to meet. The name Picnic actually came from her idea of a brand embodying the camaraderie and joy of people coming together and everyone contributing something to the picnic table. And now she has a crew of people helping her source the towels since, not surprisingly, it can be hard to do that from her Brooklyn apartment. Danny regularly launches her one-of-a-kind hats, masks, and highly curated vintage. You have to jump on it right away because it sells out fast. And she's working on some really cool new things right now. First is a very exciting collab with a plant-based natural beauty brand based out in the Rockaways called Goldies. They collaborated on an exclusive picnic wear candle that will be out in time for the holidays. It's a super limited rum, but it smells amazing. The scent is cedar, cardamom, cabin, and a hint of rose. And these are like all of my favorites. So I cannot wait to smell this. Sarah of Goldies is pouring 50 candles, but three of them will have a special stone hidden within the wax. And each stone will correspond to three prizes. One is a custom hat. Another is a $50 gift card. And the third is a $25 gift card. So it's like a Willy Wonka situation. I mean, how can you not love that? Picnicware will also be selling Goldie's amazing sea mineral fennel toner in combo with another awesome Terry project. Danny is making reusable makeup remover pads from the remnants of the towels she's been collecting. I am obsessed with this idea because I've been trying to find new ways to consume less cotton, Q-tips, etc. in my own skincare routine. I can't wait to try these. And Danny made these for herself months ago when she was trying to avoid using disposable cotton pads to take off her own makeup at the end of the day. This is such a great gift for someone who wants to minimize their waste or a great gift for yourself because you deserve something nice too. Don't forget that. I asked Danny, why should people buy stuff from you? Which is, you know, a hard question, right? 
And I love her answer. She said, if and only if they absolutely adore the product and they know they will cherish it and take proper care of it for years to come. I guess you can see why I'm such a huge fan of picnic wear and Danny. If you found something you're in love with on the picnic wear Instagram or the website, once again, that's picnicwear.com, where is spelled W-E-A-R, like wear it on your body. You're in luck because Close Horse listeners can use promo code CLOSEHORSE10 to get 10% off any purchase of $50 and over from now until the end of November. Once again, that's CLOSEHORSE10, all lowercase, the number 10, to get 10% off any purchase of $50 and over. I'll include that promo code in today's show notes. Picnicware, future vintage over future garbage. Thank you so much for supporting Close Horse. All right. Are you ready to get down to the main event? If you missed the first half of this LuLaRoe story, which I guess actually now is a first third, please listen to that last episode before you get into this one. But here are the headlines from that last episode. LuLaRoe was founded by Mark Stidham and Deanne Brady. It's an MLM, which is a multi-level marketing business that sells leggings and some other clothing items. And most importantly, MLMs are technically legal while pyramid schemes are not, but that line between legal and illegal is, I mean, I guess you would say it's kind of nebulous. We're going to talk about that a lot today. Again, Kate Willis decided to start selling LuLaRoe in 2016. She is a real person whose essay about her experience took the internet by storm a few years ago. Unfortunately, That essay has kind of disappeared as things do on the internet sometimes, but I've been able to piece it together via various articles. Also, I'm just going to, I'm adding this in after I've edited everything. Unfortunately, I kept jumping back and forth between Kate and Katie, and I'm really sorry. Katie is the right name, and I promise I'll do better in the future. Kate's experience with LuLaRoe really mirrors the ups and downs of the company. So let's use her story as a means of sort of outlining it all. Because when I started to try to sort out all of the drama and lawsuits and bad press, I got really overwhelmed. Following Kate's story has kind of helped me rein it in. Okay, so Kate Willis decided to start selling LuLaRoe in 2016. And this was like the heyday of LuLaRoe. She was a fan of the leggings, and like many millennials who started slinging for the brand, she was hoping to be able to use the income to pay down her student loan debt. So in March 2015, the year before Kate started selling, there were about a thousand LuLaRoe consultants. By 2016, when Kate joined up, the company had more than 60,000 consultants, and it was earning more than a billion dollars in revenue. I mean, that... To say that that's exponential growth is an understatement. I don't even, I can't even think of an adjective that would convey how crazy this growth is. Mark and Deanne, the founders, had gone from having bad credit and a house in foreclosure to, by 2015, buying a multi-million dollar ranch in Wyoming and flying all over the country on their private jet. And I cannot emphasize this enough. Just before starting LuLaRoe, Mark and Deanne had a long history of tax evasion, tax liens, major unpaid debt. I mean, 
they were a mess. I was going to include the list of all their debts and crazy financial problems in this episode, but it would seriously be just five minutes of me reading their credit report to you. It was bonkers. The house that they were living in at the time they launched LuLaRoe was bought with money that they had to borrow from a friend. That's how bad their credit was. They couldn't even get a mortgage. So these were people who were very bad with money, possibly bad with business, and definitely, 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 definitely prone to living outside their means. Okay, but I don't want you to forget about Kate. I just wanted to, you know, remind you of how how things were going. So for Kate, at first, it was going really well. She sold a lot of leggings. And soon, she had 15 people selling for her. And remember, this is known as her downline. And so then she would be the upline to those people. Those are two terms I'm going to throw around a lot. And at this point, the LuLaRoe policy was that... She made money off of her own sales, so things she sold to people outside the company, and a 5%, what they call bonus, of each of her downline sales. So remember that that 5% is called a bonus. It's such a strange name for it, but that's what they called it. That's what we're going to call it through this episode. It's really not a bonus as much as it's like a cut. I don't know. Anyway, as we discussed in the last episode... This bonus, this downline is really where you start to make your money when you're working for an MLM. Now, at this point in LuLaRoe's history, Kate and all of the other, quote, fashion consultants would receive 5% of the total sales that LuLaRoe made to every new recruit of theirs. Now, let me clarify that again. Katie would receive a bonus of the 5% on every sale that LuLaRoe made to the recruits under her. And this had nothing to do with selling to customers outside the company. LuLaRoe didn't care about that. Once the new fashion consultants paid for their inventory, then their job was done. And so that is how the bonuses were calculated. So let's take a moment to talk about that. Because for one, if a fashion consultant is getting 5% of the leggings, that their downlines purchase from the company, then it sets up two situations and both are not so good. First, there's a lot of motivation for this more senior consultant, the recruiter, to help the more junior consultant, the recruitee, to help sell their inventory, right? Yes, I suppose if they coach them through making sales, then maybe they will end up buying more inventory from LuLaRoe and the recruiter will get another 5% off of that. But as we've learned, A lot of people start up with MLMs and drop out pretty fast because it's hard. And LuLaRoe is one of the more expensive MLMs, requiring approximately a $5,000 investment in inventory. Most other MLMs ask for like $1 or $200 to get involved. And if you're a recruiter getting 5% of that $5,000 startup investment, well, that's $250 right there that you got just for convincing someone to take the plunge. So one way to make more money could be to just convince tons of people to make that initial investment. So for example, you do that 10 times in a month, you've just made $2,500. So while this might sound like wild speculation, there's actually evidence of this kind of stuff happening pretty regularly. There are multiple blogs and Reddit groups for recovering LuLaRoe consultants, and oh my God, do they have some stories. There's even one story of an upline paying for, 
quote, recruits startup inventory. There weren't really any actual recruits, just people she got to agree to pose as recruits just so she could get that 5% cut. Then she would keep the inventory and resell it herself. Once again, this upline could pocket $250 for every new recruit. And that's if the new recruit, real or otherwise, only makes the minimum investment. So there is a lot of motivation here to recruit as many people as possible or make up fake recruits. It's kind of smart, actually. Which brings me to another situation that seemed to develop time and time again with LuLaRoe. Fashion consultants were encouraged, I mean, no, they were pressured, like all caps pressured, by their upline, the person who recruited them, to make a much bigger investment. So lots of newbies just went right for it and bought $10,000 worth of inventory to start. And once they got going... They were pressured to buy more and more and more, even if they weren't selling that much. And there were all kinds of tactics to make this happen. Special holiday collections that they just had to have to keep their customers interested, the opportunity to have more sizes to offer the customers, and just this generic, not always true sentiment of, you know, you have to spend money to make money. Kate said her uplines were constantly encouraging her to buy more and more clothing, even hosting giveaways for their team, for things like iPads, to encourage bigger orders. Because once again, these uplines are making 5% of whatever their recruiters buy, not what's actually being sold. I'm going to keep reminding you of that because this is a really important part of the story. Do you remember in the last episode when I told you the two signs that an MLM is actually a pyramid scheme per the Federal Trade Commission? Well, one of them was this, inventory loading, as in requiring or at least intensely pressuring sellers to buy more inventory than they could ever realistically sell. Inventory loading is also known as channel stuffing, which is a cringy name. Not to ruin this episode, but that term, channel stuffing, is going to make another appearance later in this episode. Okay, well, let's continue here. I've read so many stories all over the internet about the kind of financial ruin LuLaRoe fashion consultants have experienced, and it is devastating. One recruit invested a total of $15,000 in her new business. I did go into debt, she said. I opened up a credit card to pay for my initial inventory and was told to keep buying inventory so as to have 10 of each size in every style at all times. I still owe over $10,000 on that credit card. Another recruit was told that she had to purchase a minimum of 33 units each month to be allowed to continue to sell LuLaRoe. And that's just $600 right there. I had to use credit cards not to start the business, but to continue it. I can't even calculate the amount of time I spent away from my family or the stress I have gone through in the last year, but I would say I put in around $11,000 total when all is said and done, and I probably only made about $4,000, she said. Everything I made went immediately back into my business or to pay off what I'd spent on inventory and supplies on credit cards. And this credit card story is a recurring theme. Another woman had been lured into LuLaRoe by a friend who assured her that she would be able to quickly and easily make enough money to be able to adopt a child. 
She and her husband were struggling with infertility, but the costs of adoption were just prohibitive. Well, ultimately, she signed up for LuLaRoe in the attempt to make the money to pay for this adoption, and she ended up losing $7,000. And that kind of makes you wonder about what happened with that friendship and all of the other friendships that lead to selling LuLaRoe. That just kills me. So Katie was doing really well. She converted her dining room into a little boutique for all of her LuLaRoe stuff, and she was selling, 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 basically working around the clock because she had to constantly launch new prints in her Facebook group and then ship out everything that she sold kind of immediately. And she would admit the motivation and pressure to work constantly was part of the LuLaRoe culture. If your sales weren't good, it was your fault not LuLaRoe's fault. And that kind of messaging came from the top. And Katie did feel like she was making a lot of money. At this point, she wasn't really sitting down and doing the math, and she wasn't realizing how much she was spending on new inventory all the time. So let's take a moment to review how sellers, aka the fashion consultants, get their inventory The sellers place orders by units and maybe category, like dresses versus leggings, but they don't get to pick prints. Boxes arrive with a mixture of all kinds of prints and sizes, and ostensibly, every seller gets a different mix of items. There might be some seasonal holiday prints or even a collab with Disney, but for the most part, it's just a bunch of random prints. I looked high and low to figure out who was designing all these prints. I mean, I assumed it would have to be just like a full army of print designers, but I couldn't find anything. And so based on my experience in the industry, I'm guessing that LuLaRoe was just picking from prints that the factory was offering, probably either designed by the factory team or just 100% completely knocked off from prints designed by other retailers, which as you know, happens nonstop in the industry. And LuLaRoe was selling millions of pairs of leggings, but making only 5,000 units of each print. That's the gimmick, that everything is rare, so you better act now or miss out forever on a pair of printed leggings. So they needed a ton of prints. There are allegations all over the internet of print theft on the part of LuLaRoe, but I mean, to be honest, it's more likely that the factory team was actually the one copying the art because it doesn't seem like there were a lot of designers of any type on the LuLaRoe payroll. But here's the thing, and maybe you already know this. A lot of these prints were terrible, like phallic, ugly colors, weird print placement. Like there are so many prints that somehow magically turn into straight up genitals when they land in the crotch zone. It's amazing. There was even a really ill-advised print of Deanne wearing a Santa hat. And I've heard stories about racist prints, some with curse words or marijuana leaves. And I mean, you name it, all the things that could happen and go wrong with a print, they've happened for LuLaRoe. And that also tells me that LuLaRoe wasn't designing these prints. They may not have even been seeing a full mock-up of the full print. And so that's how these marijuana leaves and curse words seep in. Most of these prints were so hideous that you couldn't sell them at all. Katie said, you sell 40% of the prints, you keep buying more inventory, but the sell-through just isn't there. 
but you're also stuck with all the ugly stuff. You buy another box, you sell 10 out of the 30 pieces, you're still left with 20, you go in and order more. It's just a constant cycle. So Katie was buying inventory nonstop. And yes, she was selling a lot, but even more was piling up in her house. I mean, she's basically saying for every 30 pieces, 20 stuck around. In the previous episode, I mentioned how the thrift stores here in Pennsylvania are just like bursting with LuLaRoe. And now I'm starting to see how that happened, right? Okay, so let's talk about LuLaRoe customers and this kind of cult of LuLaRoe. And you know by now that accidentally or otherwise, our recurring theme of Clothes Horse is these communities of fans that brands have. We've talked about Delia's, Bath & Body Works, and now LuLaRoe. Whether or not we should be friends of companies that are, in fact, not our friends is a whole other episode of the pod, which, hmm, now I kind of want to (laughs) do. Who wants to be a guest for that? Drop me an email. (laughs) LuLaRoe was an instant sensation for its quote, and I hate this term, I'm just going to say it, buttery leggings. And they, they went with this. Like, this was the corporately approved adjective, buttery The leggings were buttery. The fabrics were buttery. They fit everyone. They seemed universally flattering. And they were great for chasing kids around and running errands. I mean, they really resonated with the customer. The customers will tell you that wearing LuLaRoe made them feel confident, like their best selves. And I can appreciate that. I'm going to tell you this. I'm not a fan of leggings. I am definitely not a fan of printed leggings. And in general... I personally do not like the aesthetic of LuLaRoe, but as we've talked about in the past, and as I will continue to lecture you about in the future, the whole good taste slash bad taste thing is really just a more socially acceptable version of classism. So while you might dismiss these leggings as fug or whatever else, you might not also be into my whole Mennonite Stevie Nicks aesthetic, and I'm okay with that too. Personal style is a personal choice and has nothing to do with a person's quality or worthiness. So let's just take a moment to remind ourselves that we will stop judging people for being obsessed with LuLaRoe. If it's hard for you to relate to these women, then I would suggest picking something that you love, like all caps L-O-V-E, and mentally substituting that every time I say LuLaRoe. For example, I love houseplants. They are one of my simplest joys, and the way I commemorate every special occasion or how I cheer myself up on a bad day is to get a plant. I spend so much time looking at my plants, caring for my plants. They bring so much joy to me. So every time I substitute houseplants for LuLaRoe, I get really sad thinking about how these women were part of my French here, just fucked over because they loved plants so much, except wait. They loved leggings, but it's the same thing. So fans loved LuLaRoe and this built-in scarcity model, as in there were only 5,000 units of each print out in the world, that made buying them way more exciting. Is this reminding you of Bath and Body Works yet? Because it (laughs) definitely is me. In fact, Katie, who's the heroine of our story here, would admit that she herself had about 200 pairs of LuLaRoe leggings before she even started selling them and that she rarely wore them. She just liked to collect them. She just liked to have them. 
So LuLaRoe is not just about the actual clothing. It's also about the collectability. I would say see also Supreme and Nike. So wait, I'm realizing that we are saying that LuLaRoe fans and sneakerheads are the same kind of people. And now I'm imagining a convention that's just LuLaRoe and sneakerheads and you know, maybe we, maybe some comic book collectors and you know what? We could get Dustin in there with all his record collecting friends. I'm starting to see a bigger picture here, right? Like there's, there's something intrinsically human about collecting, right? So like all collectors, like all mega fans, LuLaRoe customers were super consumed with tracking down their quote unicorn styles, meaning the print that they loved, that they were obsessed with in their size. And since every seller was supposedly receiving their own mix of prints and sizes, these customers would obsessively join and monitor multiple Facebook groups. And oh no, yeah, if I haven't mentioned this yet, that was the primary way of selling LuLaRoe. Basically, sellers would create Facebook groups where they would launch all of their new prints and then buyers would claim their purchases in the comments. It's pretty similar to how a lot of vintage is being sold on Instagram now. So let's take a pause for a minute, though, to talk about that. I want you to think about all the additional time and money that sellers were investing to photograph and launch these prints. They would need a camera, lighting, maybe a seamless backdrop, a mannequin or a model, Photoshop to edit all the photos, and then the full-time work of launching, 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 and then monitoring comments for sales, then sending invoices, shipping out orders. I mean, this was a lot of work. And it was also a a lot of additional upfront investment on things outside of the actual inventory. And then with this constant flow of boxes of product arriving at their houses, they were launching tons of prints every week. Now, these Facebook groups could get crazy sometimes as customers fought over their unicorn prints. And the internet is full of crazy customer stories. I'm only going to tell you one because it just feels like what would happen if George Costanza were a LuLaRoe fan. So a customer messaged a seller and said, hey, please put that dress on hold for me. My mother just had a stroke, so I have to run to the hospital to see how she's doing, but I definitely want the dress and I'll pay for it when I'm done. A few hours later, like literally a few hours later, the seller gets a message from the same Facebook account And this message now is from the husband of the customer saying, my wife was killed on a head-on crash on the way to the hospital to see her mother, but I know she wanted to be buried in this dress. So I wanted to see if I could get a discount on it. (laughs) You're probably not surprised to hear that the wife was in fact alive and well. She just wanted a discount on the dress. I mean, that's such some Costanza right there, right? Fast fashion makes us all do some crazy things. So Katie was working around the clock, but she felt like she was making a lot of money and it was worth it. And she was really being drawn into the culture of LuLaRoe. She attended a LuLaRoe convention in 2016 and she was impressed by the sense of community and empowerment. She felt like she was part of a larger group of badass women. As she said, I was being independent I had constantly depended on others for a long time, and here I was doing something for myself. That's that's a big deal, right? And there were a lot of LuLaRoe events to take part in slash strive to sell enough to be a part of. Like 
these conventions and even special LuLaRoe cruises. But to get to these events, you had to sell, sell, sell. And Katie will tell you she sold, sold, sold and bought more and more inventory. At her peak, Katie says she was selling so many items, she once got a bonus check of $8,000. But despite this, when she really dug into the numbers, she wasn't actually making a profit from her business because she had to keep buying new inventory. To do that, she opened new credit cards. She would basically take her profit and bonus checks as fast as they came to pay off the cards, but then immediately turn around and charge more inventory. She sold what would sell and then sat on stuff that wouldn't. And at one point, she had more than 8,000 pairs of leggings in her dining room that were unsold. This is starting to sound like inventory loading, isn't it? Or channel stuffing. LuLaRoe was growing and growing. But let's remember, this was a family business filled with, well, family. So we had Mark and Deanne leading the company. Neither of them really had any experience in what they were doing. And their past history showed that they were maybe not that good with business or money. In fact, many outsiders were shocked to see that LuLaRoe was succeeding at all because they had always seemed like such an unstable couple. Next, Deanne's son, Kenneth, was the VP of sales. Kenneth's wife, Jill, was the official spokesperson for the company. Her daughter, Amelia, was the brand ambassador. Amelia's husband, Justin, was the chief marketing officer. Deanne's son, Jordan, was the head of leadership and culture development, which I guess is some kind of HR job or something. And there were tons and tons of other relatives, spouses, cousins, you name it, working in the office, selling the leggings, running events, and so on. But where was Deanne's twin, Diane? Especially since we know that she was selling clothes alongside her for decades. I mean, she just like is erased from this story. But like, wouldn't your twin, who was your longtime best friend and business partner, be involved? I mean, they got married on the same day. Well, in June 2013, Diane filed an LLC for her own MLM, oh, good Lord, and it was called Honey and Lace. It was eventually renamed Piffany. I don't know which name is worse. In 2019, LuLaRoe sued Piffany and several ex-consultants, meaning sellers, claiming that Piffany was essentially stealing their consultants. And in February 2019, LuLaRoe announced that the two companies had come to a resolution mediated by their attorneys. Basically, that as far as I can tell, that Piffany would stop stealing consultants and selling similar product. I'm, it, it was all a lot of just nonsense talk. I can't figure out what's going on with Piffany now because their website seems to be active, but it's in phase one of development. So maybe it's just been stuck there for a while. But it's clothing that would definitely appeal to the LuLaRoe customer. So I don't know what's going on there. But it does not seem like a harmonious relationship. Once again, this is a family business that does not include Deanne's twin sister and longtime business partner. Just something shady going on there. But back to the family thing. I want to reiterate that no one had any actual experience in fashion or business or operations or any of the other stuff that needs to happen to run a business. And these are the kind of things that will destroy your business. But the business was growing and growing without any experts stepping in to make sure things were going well. And for a while, 
it seemed like things were going well. According to Daryl Trujillo, a former employee who had been hired in February 2016 for LuLaRoe's retailer services email team, it was an impending disaster. No one had any experience, and there was just a dangerous combination of delusion and incompetence going on. The cracks were beginning to show, even if the outside world wasn't seeing them yet. But Deanne and Mark refused to put a pause on growth until they could figure it out. Trujillo said, it was like somebody stuffing their face too much at a Thanksgiving day table, but they just couldn't stop eating. I mean, that, I had to include that quote. I, I love that. I'm sure you have a sense of foreboding by now, and well, so do I. <laughs> well, the business took a turn for the worse in 2017. First, in March, two women filed a class action lawsuit against Deanne and Mark for knowingly selling low-quality leggings because they were cutting quality to keep up with demand. The lawsuit stated, quote, Specifically, customers have complained that the leggings are of such poor quality that holes, tears, and rips appear before wearing during the first use or shortly thereafter. The leggings have been described as tearing as easily as wet toilet paper. The internet is filled with stories and photos of leggings filled with holes with descriptions like sat on a suede couch for two hours watching Netflix and my coworker said, I can see your underwear. The company's official response was, the leggings may get holes because we weaken the fibers to make them buttery soft. We have done all we can to fix them. I don't know. That's like not very reassuring to me. Now, Katie said around this same time that the products were becoming harder to sell. For one, the market was becoming saturated with LuLaRoe. It seemed like too many people were selling the brand, which reminds me of the other sign that an MLM might be a pyramid scheme, according to the FTC. A lack of retail sales because more products are being sold to new recruits than actual customers, probably because the market is too saturated. Well, this is kind of starting to look like a pyramid scheme, right? Too many people selling, corporate forcing sellers to buy more product than they can actually sell. I mean, these are some major red flags. Katie herself had reported receiving a lot of leggings with damages, holes, and even mold during that time. And she reached out to customer service for replacements, but just kind of got the runaround. And other sellers were complaining of the same problem, but their uplines told them to basically suck it up and throw them out without a refund. And they all knew, even Katie, that complaining too much to your upline could have all kinds of repercussions, like being thrown out of a Facebook selling group, which is basically your lifeline for selling to customers, or you could be uninvited to LuLaRoe events. So sellers just ate the cost. Some did still sell the moldy clothes because their upline said they had to. And one seller said that a friend's kid's got sick from some moldy LuLaRoe clothing that she had sold them. Once again, this business that is built off of women's friendships possibly destroyed so many women's friendships. At the time, there was a lot of discussion that LuLaRoe had moved to less quality factories to save money and make more inventory faster, which I do believe but I think, as an expert on how these things can go wrong, 
I've lived through this. I think these factories were outsourcing to other factories. We've talked about this in the past. If an order is too big for one factory, they will subcontract part of the order to someone else. We heard about that from Selena with the sandals literally just being made in the street of a town by random villagers. I mean, this happens all the time. I also think that LuLaRoe was rushing, possibly a little greedily, so they weren't doing any quality inspections. And I would assume that in the warehouse where these shipments to the sellers were being packed, the warehouse workers saw the quality issues and were told to turn a blind eye. LuLaRoe definitely knew that they were sending bad product to sellers, period. That first quality issue lawsuit led to more lawsuits from May to October 2017. Five more class action lawsuits were filed on behalf of customers all over the country, claiming that LuLaRoe was knowingly selling defective products to consultants and then refusing to refund them. The six cases were eventually consolidated into one large class action suit called Tanya Mack versus LuLaRoe Inc., which was scheduled for trial this year in October, but it was pushed out due to COVID. And I I don't know what's going to happen with that case, but I will say that it could be the final straw for LuLaRoe because it's pretty huge. Two more huge policy changes happened that year that really, and I mean really, really, really negatively affected sellers. First, the bonus policy changed. Previously, if you recall, fashion consultants would get a 5% bonus of whatever their downline bought. So whether or not their downline ever sold even a single pair of leggings to a customer outside the company, the upline would make a 5% bonus on what the seller bought. Well, the company kind of just out of the blue changed the policy. The 5% bonus would apply only to what was actually sold to outside customers. Now, instead of getting bonuses based on how much inventory their downlines were buying, consultants would be getting bonuses based on how many pieces their downlines were actually able to sell to actual customers. In later court filings, an executive stated that Mark told him that this policy change was implemented because the company was worried about breaking FTC rules about, quote, channel stuffing. Because guess what? They were 100% channel stuffing because LuLaRoe was a pyramid scheme. Now, this change was devastating for sellers because they were already hanging on by a thread financially. And now they saw a 75% decrease in their bonuses. Basically, if you were making $1,000 a month in bonuses, now you are making $250. Do the math there. It's a huge loss for these sellers. According to the same executive I quoted earlier, the one who talked about the channel stuffing, this bonus change, quote, had an almost immediate negative impact on the company's revenues. And within three months, LuLaRoe's sales dropped approximately $250 million to around $100 million in August 2017. That's huge, okay? Consultants also began to leave the company just in droves from 50,000 in early 2017 to 35,000 in September 2018. The other policy change was about refunds for sellers. Previously, 
any seller that was leaving the company could theoretically get a 100% refund for unsold inventory. Did it always happen? No. Would it happen in a timely manner? Probably not. Would it require a lot of phone calls and nagging? For sure. But now, tons of people were leaving the company all at once. Abruptly, while all this other stuff was going down, the company changed its policy to a 90% refund. And it gave sellers like a tiny amount of time to submit refund requests under the old policy, but it was virtually inachievable. Many, many sellers lost a lot of money. And remember, these people were living off of credit cards, like credit cards were funding their business. That 10% might not sound like a lot of money, but let's do the math to figure it out. So earlier, you might remember that Katie said at one point that she had 8,000 pairs of unsold leggings in her dining room. If she could only return 90% of them, that would leave 800 pairs that could not be returned under the new policy. And these leggings cost about $12 a piece. So we're looking at Katie losing $9,600 under this new policy, almost $10,000. And she, like many other sellers, was funding her business with credit cards. So this is like super scary. I mean, it's making my chest hurt talking about it. (laughs) All right. I'm going to leave this story with that cliffhanger because, well, there's still so much more to tell. So many lawsuits, so many LuLaRoe cruises, so many ostentatious birthday parties and million dollar cars. So I'll do all of that on the next episode, which I swear, no matter what, will be the final episode of this LuLaRoe saga. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. You know, my goal with Close Horse is to educate more and more people about what's going on with the stuff we buy and wear. So the more listeners, the more the word is spreading. Thank you to everyone who has shared our content or recommended us on Instagram. I love seeing your shares. I love hearing your encouragement, your suggestions. I love answering your questions. You're all the best and hearing from you makes me so happy. And by the way, as I've mentioned previously, If you ever want me to share a source for the information that I provide here or or on Instagram, please get in touch. I have the world's biggest bookmark folder. I maybe am bragging a little bit. (laughs) And while I'm not a journalist, I'm super committed to providing you with accurate, true facts and information. So I vet all my sources. Do you have some feedback, an episode idea? I'm always looking for those. Do you want to be a guest on Clothes Horse? drop me a line at clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com or you can DM via Instagram at clotheshorsepodcast. Once again, if you have a question, please hit me up because I love researching the answer. I love research. (laughs) If you want to meet other Close Horse listeners, join the Close Horsing Around Facebook group and I'll share a link in the show notes. We're just getting it started, but I want to see you all there. And... Don't forget the Clothes Horse Hotline. The phone number is 717-925-7417. Give me a call. 
Even if you just want to say hi or tell me something random, if you know someone who was involved in an MLM or maybe you've bought something yourself, I would love to hear all about it. Tell me your stories. And don't forget to check out the department. I co-host it with my friend Kim. We talk about trends, taste, our obsessions, weird things that we think are funny, and I mean so much more. I'll share a link in the show notes. Thank you as always to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye.